Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, for any of you that are new here or you're tuning in for one of the first few times, my name is David. I'm a member of the preaching team, one of the pastors here. And this is our second week in a little mini-series we're kind of shoving in the middle of Exodus called Counterculture. And we've been discussing this idea that we are citizens of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, but we live in an earthly kingdom. We live in America. And so there's this tension because our culture has values. Our culture has a way of living that in many instances is the opposite of the way that God calls us to live. And so we're taking a look at that. And, and as we saw last week, uh, it's real. And, and it's messy, but it's very necessary. I'd like to throw a picture up here. Uh, so, so this is not uh, this is not a display at the Halloween store. This is a shrine to Santa Muerte, uh, which is Santa Muerte, or you know, the Saint of Death, is not a real saint that the Catholic Church recognizes. But in Latin America, this is a very popular saint to revere and to give offerings to. And, and to, to probably oversimplify what's happened in Latin America, when the Catholics came in, in many cases they just forced the native people to become Catholic without necessarily explaining everything well and making sure that they truly converted. And so what the people did is they just kind of mixed religions. In many places in Latin America, you find people that would call themselves Catholic, and they've combined... Catholic religion with their native religion. And so you have this strange mixture of, of magic and sacrifice with, with Catholic idols and, and even a little bit of scripture here and there. And, and we call this syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of cultures and ideas from different places. It's the blending of cultures and ideas from different places. And today we're going to talk a little bit about worldview as well. So we have syncretism, the blending of cultures and ideas from different places. And we have worldview, which is beliefs and ideas through which we see and understand the world. Beliefs and ideas through which we see and understand the world. So all of us have a lens all of us have certain beliefs that we carry into this life. And so when we experience something, when something happens to us, we have a category for it. Some cultures uh, are, have a very supernatural worldview, and so that they might, uh, to an extreme degree, they might consider every form of sickness to be a spiritual attack. And then you have cultures like ours, which is actually naturalistic, anti-supernatural, and we tend to explain even the oddest things away because our culture doesn't like to believe in the supernatural. But I'm going to make this point, and we're going to see this in Scripture. God's people are not to mix false ideas and practices into their lives. God's people are not to mix false ideas and practices into their lives. Lives. And so we're going to talk about this issue of syncretism, 
Because believe it or not, syncretism exists in this church. And, and syncretism even exists in my heart. This is something we need to approach and root out. So, so let's pray as we get into this. Holy Spirit, please lead us in truth. May these words be yours. God, please cut open our hearts and divide what is of your word and what is of the world. Please teach us to walk in your ways in these moments today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'd like you to turn with me to Leviticus 18. We've been actually, before this series, we were in the book of Exodus, and we, so we saw God's people, the Israelites, rescue out of Egypt. We've seen God bring them onto the threshold of the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And in this intermediate stage in the wilderness, God gave them his law. He gave them a way to live so that they would be different than the other peoples of the world. And we're going to see this as we continue through this year, going through uh, those books of the Bible that, that, that explain the exodus um, up until God's people come into the promised land. And so in Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So, so as God is bringing his people out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the land that he promised Abraham. He gives them this command. He says, do not live as the Egyptians. Do not practice the wicked things that the Egyptians do. And there are people who are living in the area that I'm bringing you to, the Canaanites. Don't live as the Canaanites either. Avoid their wicked practices. And, and if you look at the rest of that chapter 18 in Leviticus, it gives a very specific list of the sexually immoral practices of the Canaanites and the Egyptians that God's people were to abstain from. And if you look at Deuteronomy 18, you see a very similar list, but instead of talking about sexual relations and how they damage the family, it's a list of religious practices and occultic practices that God's people were to avoid. So, so God made it very clear in his law that God's people were to be different than these other cultures that had very wicked and evil practices, both religious and in society. They were to avoid these things. And yet, what happens when God's people actually come into the promised land? Well, what happens when they finally have their own nation? They start adopting all of the practices of the people around them. Uh, please turn with me to... The book of Judges, we're going to be in 17 and 18. I'm just going to summarize, so I'd encourage you, please go back and read through this section of Scripture in your own time. In chapter 17, there's this guy named Micah. 
And, and apparently, Micah had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. That's a lot of money. He stole this money from his mom. And, and in verse 2, he says, he says to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that, you, that, that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And, and, and what's about to happen is just shocking. His mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. My guess is if, if any of your children stole a massive amount of money from you and lied about it, you probably wouldn't go, blessed be the Lord. That's my two cents on that. But in, in verse 3 it says, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Okay, so this money has been restored to her, and she wants to dedicate it to God. She wants to give it to the Lord. And we saw that that was something that, that God gave his people, that you could dedicate certain things to the Lord. This is where it gets extra wacky. To make a carved image and a metal image. So, so the language that this woman is using is about God. It's about the Lord. But when it comes to dedicating, to the, dedicating this money to the Lord, the money is used to make an idol. I, I mean, just this small interaction, these people are violating half of the Ten Commandments. This man has dishonored his mother. He's lied to her. He's stolen from her. And their response is, let's make an idol. Let's make a carved image. And it gets even worse. So, so Micah kind of sets up his own little DIY religion in his basement. He's got his own little shrines in there, and he sets up one of his sons to be a priest. And then one day, a Levite walks by. Now, the Levites were, were the tribe of God's people that were dedicated to be priests. God had set them up to serve in the tabernacle and eventually the temple, and this Levite comes by, and Micah says, hey, you are a Levite. I will pay your bills. I will keep you fed and clothed and give you a nice salary if you are my personal priest. And the Levite does it. So this Levite, who's supposed to be part of the, the, the order of priests set apart for the worship of the living God, sells himself out to work in this little idol alcove in this guy's house. And then one day, people from the tribe of Dan come through, and they're scouting out the land. They're trying to conquer some land, some property for themselves. And they go, hey, I heard that there are a bunch of precious idols in this house. There are gods in this house. So they go in there to steal them. And when, when the Levite goes, whoa, what are you guys doing? They say, hey, put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Wouldn't it be better if you could be the priest for our entire tribe than just this one dude? And he does it. This is the book of Judges. This is one generation removed from the generation of God's people that conquered the land. And they've mixed the wicked practices of the Canaanites, but they've still retained a little bit. Uh, of their worship of the living God. The language is still there. They still recognize that the Levites should be priests, but they've made it utterly pagan. It is not worship of the living God. And unfortunately, the situation 
only gets worse. In, in Isaiah 1, God's uh, speaking through his prophet Isaiah says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. And the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are, uh, sorry, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is harsh language. And it's interesting, in these verses, God is saying, all of the things I commanded you to do in worship of me, I hate them. Well, why? Because God's people had continued to offer sacrifices to God. They continued to keep the tabernacle, and at this time, the temple functional. They were still engaging in the religion, the rituals that God had given them, but at the same time, they are, they're committing atrocities against each other, and they are worshiping all of these false gods. God says, look, when you, when you come in to worship me, I hate it because you aren't worshiping me. You're doing the rituals, but you have, you have adopted all of these practices of these other nations. I can't bear it any longer. God's people are not to mix false ideas and practices into their lives. And we could, we could go throughout the whole Bible and see example after example of uh, an example of how God's people have fallen into this sin. The Judaizers in the early church did this, where they said, yeah, Jesus is all great, but you still have to follow every single thing that the law tells you to. And that was a false teaching that the apostles actively rebuked in the New Testament. Syncretism is dangerous because there is an objective and revealed spiritual reality. Syncretism is dangerous because there is an objective and revealed spiritual reality. Religion isn't a buffet. So that's a really common idea in our time. There, there's this, this buffet idea to religion and spirituality that, I mean, I, I guess I'll call myself a Christian, but I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of New Age or Buddhism on that. Or, or you, you know, you have this Steve Harvey mentality that, oh, I can be a Christian and a Muslim. We have this DIY religion mindset in our culture. But, but as Christians, we believe that there is a spiritual reality that religion is not just a figment of our imaginations, but there is a God. There is a heaven and a hell. There is a spiritual realm, and it is objective. It is real. There is truth to be established about the spiritual world. And if that's the case, there is an approach in, in how we walk with God. We can't just make up whichever way we want and mix a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but God has revealed himself to us.
So, so really, when it comes to religion, you do not have a buffet. Because in a buffet, all of the options are edible. All of the options are food. Unless you go to the Great Wall Buffet. I've seen some sketchy things there. But all of the options are food. But if we're to use that analogy, when you look at the buffet of religion, there is one source of food at the buffet. And everything else is rubbish and fecal matter. Just spread across. And you start mixing those things, it becomes inedible. Like if you're enjoying a plate of food, I say, hey, would you like some motor oil on that? You aren't going to be able to eat that. And this is why syncretism is dangerous. Is if, is if we mix the pagan views of our culture into our Christianity, it can get to the point where it ceases to be Christianity. And, and I would argue that most, most of the people in this room, most of the people listening to this, we probably don't struggle with an overtly religious syncretism. But like most of you don't wake up in the morning like, you know, I'd really love to have a totem pole in the backyard that I could like dance around and offer a goat to. I don't think that that's what most of you wake up in the morning thinking about. But, but syncretism, unfortunately, has worked its way into our lives. It's something we need to be aware of. And, and so we're going to examine three false worldviews, right? A worldview is that lens that you see the world through. There are three false worldviews that are, that are central to being American, but, but are, are contrary to the way the kingdom of God works. So we're going to look at three false worldviews that are, very, that are very, very common in our culture. The first one is materialism. The first one is materialism. And there are two forms of materialism. There are actually two worldviews that we refer to as materialism. The first one is this idea that there is only the material. So, so that if, you, if any of you have relatives or friends or coworkers who are atheists, their belief likely is that there is only the material. All that exists is the natural world, what we can see and what we can observe and what we can measure. Now, now, the second understanding of material, if this one is a materialism, is that there is only the material. Only the material, natural world exists. There's nothing outside of it. There's no God. There's no spiritual world. This form of materialism, which is even more common, is simply the idea that material or stuff and things and money is what matters most in life. So, like, maybe there is a God, Maybe there are angels and demons or, or ghosts or whatever, but really the greatest purpose in my life is to accumulate things. I'm going to live my life based around things and stuff and material goals. Both of these are false worldviews that are deeply ingrained in our culture. In talking about the idea that, that, that the material world is all that exists, this is what is taught in our school systems. This is the worldview that, that, that the majority of children in America are educated in. So it doesn't matter if, 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 if kids go to church or they're raised by parents who are religious. This is the worldview that, that underlies the education system. That, that only the material exists. Only the natural world. There is no creator God who has made it. There is no spiritual world. And some of our founding fathers here in America were deists. 
And deism is, is, is this mixture of naturalism, materialism, with a little bit of Christianity in there. It's this idea that God created the world, and then he left. So, so God made the world, and he made it intricately and beautifully. He, he wound it up like a clock, and then he left. So God isn't involved in the world anymore. Like we recognize that God has created the world. He's created people with value and freedom, but he's not involved in the world. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He ripped pages out of his Bible because he wanted to get the Bible down to a point that it didn't contain the supernatural. He just wanted the principles. Many of the men that founded this country were deists. And so it's ingrained in our culture. And when it comes to the idea that stuff is most important... I mean, just look around Hollis. There are, there are so many people in our culture just living beyond their means. Because when stuff is most important, I'll take as much debt as I can so that I can get the boat, I can get the car I want, I can get the house I want, I can go on the vacations that look good on Instagram. It's a life centered around things, that, that, the, that the objects I can bring into my life are most important It looks like a very unhealthy relationship with work because if stuff is most important, then my salary is the greatest goal in my life and anything I can do to raise that salary to get more stuff is worth it. And it's destroying families. And it doesn't create happiness. This is materialism. The second worldview is hedonism. The second worldview is is hedonism. And hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence as the highest purpose. It's the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence as the highest purpose. That that, that, That the purpose in life, what I'm living for is my desires. It's whatever is pleasing to me in the moment. Whatever my heart wants, that is my purpose in life. And we would obviously recognize this worldview to be very present in the party scene. We would recognize this worldview to be very uh, present in, in the dark world of adult entertainment. But believe it or not, this is the worldview that is the foundation of Disney. And look, I watch, I watch Disney movies, okay? I'm not, I'm not here to just throw shade at Disney. But this is the worldview that is the foundation of, of pretty much every Disney movie. Follow your heart. Once you find what your heart wants, then you'll be happy. Then you'll have your happily ever after. The theme song of Disney, that little doo-doo-doo-doo, little thing that plays in the beginning, is a dream is a wish your heart makes while you're fast asleep. That the heart is the greatest source of human purpose. Once you find out what your heart wants and you do it, then you will find fulfillment. And that is, that's false. The Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who else can understand it? And so, so what are examples of hedonism? And we look around our culture, and we have a massive, massive substance abuse issue in our community. And, and of course, we think of the two big ones, right? We think, we think of the opioid crisis and, and other drugs, and we think of alcohol. Mainers have just traditionally had a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol. But, but it, goes, it goes deeper than 
those two. A lifestyle of hedonism, it looks like, well, my sexuality is my sexuality, and I'll do with it whatever I want. Outside the context of marriage, I'll do with it as I please. Why? Because I'm living for my pleasure. I'm not living by God's standards. It looks like an addiction to pornography, that I'm going to use this to make me feel better. I'm going to use this to to kind of relieve the stresses of life, even though it's destroying my marriage, even though it's supporting the abuse of women and sex trafficking. I'm going to do this. It looks like a gaming addiction. That playing this video game is way more fun than anything in real life. So I'm just going to structure my life so that I can spend the most time playing games. And I love video games. Don't get me wrong. Most substances are good things that we then misuse and abuse. Food is a big one. You know, we go to a restaurant and we say, ooh, that looks good. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but, but where is our health going? If, we're, if we are eating beyond what we need in a way that's damaging our bodies just because when it comes time to be at the dinner table, we're eating what we want, that's hedonism. It's, well, I want it. It doesn't matter if it's good for me or good for my family. I want it, so I'm going to have it. This is hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure is the highest purpose. And the third world view, and this is, this is probably the most challenging one, the messiest one to work around, is nationalism. Nationalism is the identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations especially to the exclusion and detriment of the interests of other nations. And I want to be careful because this word has been thrown around a lot in the media to attack a certain aspect of our political culture. But nationalism is not a Republican issue. It is not a Democrat issue. It is just a person issue. Anyone can be a nationalist to a point that it is unhealthy. If, if materialism is the idea that things are most important, if hedonism is the idea that my desires are most important, nationalism is the idea that my country is most important. And can I just be honest with you? I struggle to see that as a wrong idea because we live in America. I mean, it doesn't, we live in America. Isn't America the best country on the planet anyways? I mean, this is, this is our mindset. We live in the greatest nation in the world, and we should be proud of it. But, but this is actually a false worldview, to view our physical nation as what's most important in life. What are some some examples of this? And an example of this would be seeing the results of an election as being the greatest way of making change. That, yeah, God's called me to reach my neighbors. 
God's called me to love them and serve them. But really, the, the one way that we can just fix this country is we can just pass a law. If we can just win this election, in fact, I'm actually willing to offend my neighbors. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to go to town debating half the people at church because really, if we just pass this one law, if we, just, if we could just get Washington to look a certain way, then everything's going to be okay. This stems from a false worldview that the country is most important, that it is the highest purpose, that if we change the country, we'll change Everything And look, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in what's going on in this country. I'm not saying that we should just disconnect from it. We should look out for the good and welfare of the culture that we live in. Absolutely, God calls us to that. But God's people are not to mix false ideas and practices into their lives. And so we're going to work through these, these three false worldviews. And we're going to see what God's word says. And what we should believe as Christians. When it comes to materialism, as Christians, we affirm that there is a spiritual world and that spiritual gain is greater than physical gain. As Christians, we believe that there is a God, that there is a, there is, there is a Satan, there is a, a heaven, and, and there is hell. That there are angels and demons, that God has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us for those of us who believed. And the Holy Spirit isn't just a fancy idea, but he is real and present. God with us, empowering us. This is, this is the Christian world view. We recognize that, that it does not profit a man anything if he gains the world but loses his soul. That as Christians, we're called to be generous and to give the physical belongings we have that we might love others and serve others, that they might come to know Jesus and find true wealth in him. Please turn with me uh, to 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6, 15 through 19. 2 Kings chapter 6, 15 through 19. In this instance, there's a prophet named Elisha. And he's being hunted. A lot of people don't like the prophet Elisha. And in verse 15, it says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So, so the Syrians have, have surrounded the city. There, there's a massive army out in front of the gates. And Elisha's apprentice is saying, whoa, we're toast. The city is surrounded. What are we going to do? But Elisha says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with 
them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And in the end of the story, this entire army gets captured. That by human effort, the battle looked hopeless. But Elisha said, those that are with us are way more than them. And he prayed that this guy's eyes would be open, that he would see the spiritual reality. That there are angels. There, there is a spiritual world. And, you know, we don't get to see it every single day, but there are these moments where God just pull, pulls back the curtains and he does something spectacular, sometimes something spectacular that we don't have a category for because there is a spiritual world. What syncretism looks like, right? If, if we as Christians, we blend this idea that all that exists is the material, what that looks like in Christianity is an avoidance of the supernatural. It looks like an avoidance of the supernatural. That, that sure, we love theology and we love to talk about God, but when it comes to the actual, the supernatural world existing here, oh, we're kind of not too into that. Sam Storms, a, a pastor and scholar, he describes two extremes. There, there are kind of these two extremes in Christianity when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual world. Over here, you have magic manipulation. You, you see this in extreme Pentecostalism. Some of you guys have come out of that, uh, and, and where people basically take the Holy Spirit and turn him into witchcraft. That I can, I can just declare my problems out of existence, and, I'm, you know, and they're trying to cast a demon out of every single person in that church every single Sunday, right? It, it basically becomes witchcraft. That I'm trying to manipulate the world through the spiritual power that God has given me, and that's not biblical. Predominantly, God has given us truth to transform the world, not superpowers. But, but the far extreme of that is what Sam Storms calls functional deism. They're just like Thomas Jefferson and the, and the rest of the deists. We get to this point where we say, well, I, I believe God exists. I believe that he's saved me, but he's not really involved in what's going on in this world. Like, he's coming back. I know that. But he's not really involved here and now. And, and Sam says this. He says, many evangelicals act as if they believe this. Living as if God won't intervene in response to our prayers. I mean, and this is a hard idea, but isn't it true that sometimes we just get so sucked into a world where everyone acts like there isn't a spiritual reality that we just really don't think that God's even going to answer our prayers when it comes to things supernatural, like a miraculous healing? There are so many people in this church that have medical issues that Western medicine hasn't been able to fix, Eastern medicine hasn't been able to fix. And yet, very few people call upon the elders to lay hands on them in response to James chapter 4 and 5. 
It was awesome to pray for Desiree last week. It's a sister who's struggling with cancer, and she was responding to God's word and said, I want the elders to pray over me. We need more of that. We serve a God who can heal. There is a spiritual reality. And this has slipped, this idea of materialism has slipped into even conservative Christianity. It is popular even among conservative Christian teachers to say, God won't do this anymore. Holy Spirit's done doing this and this and this and this, even though throughout church history, it's never stopped. I mean, I can take you through church history and show it. There is never a spot where, oh, the apostles are dead, so God stopped doing miracles. There's no evidence of that. It's a Western issue that has predominantly been popular in the last 300 years because, because higher criticism snuck into Western culture. Deism became popular. And so we feel, we feel awkward about the supernatural. As a pastor, people come to me in secret and they act like they're about to confess a sin. But instead of confessing a sin, they say, look, no one will believe me, but I know you'll believe me. God miraculously healed me. And people think I'm crazy, but he did. People will come to me and say, look, 20 years ago, I was in a dark place and God came to me in a vision. And that was just this turning point of God bringing his grace into my life. I know people think I'm crazy, but God did it. In my first year pastoring here, first year, I ministered to three people who were demonized in this church. Like there is a spiritual world and the Bible talks about it. The thing is, as we experience the spiritual world more and more, we realize that the book has a lot to say about it. It's the fact that we live in a culture that denies the existence of the spiritual. It's often the reason that we don't experience it because everyone's pretending it doesn't exist. And we have that, that second form of materialism, right? This idea that, that the material things in life are most important. It's this priority on, on physical belonging. So even though as Christians, we know that our reward is in heaven, we spend way more of our own personal money on finding rewards in this life. We really struggle to give. We struggle to be generous and we're always, it's so, it's so tempting to just always get sucked into that next thing I want to buy, the next thing I want to buy, the next thing I want to buy. Like once I, once I have these things, then I can just spend the rest of the money on other people. But once we get that thing, we say, oh, look, there's another thing. They came out with a new model. And things aren't evil. But when we make them the highest purpose in our lives, it is. That's a, that's a spot reserved for God. Uh, secondly, right, we talk about materialism, and now we're going to talk about hedonism. In response to hedonism, in response to this idea that the highest purpose in life is my pleasure and my desires, we believe the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this is, this is a well-established phrase in Christianity. It's part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I encourage you to snap a picture of that and spend some time digging into these verses and passages but the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The point of the Bible is not us. God has made us to glorify him and to enjoy him. And, and it is the most fulfilling thing because we were made to do it. 
But if we make our life all about what we want to do and what's pleasing to us, we're never going to be satisfied. Syncretism in Christianity um, with hedonism looks like being loosely involved in Christianity. But really, in our private life, we do whatever we want. So, like, I'll go to church. Sure. I like to go to church, but how I handle my money, I'm really just using it for maybe things that, that aren't the greatest, and, and I'm, I'm just sexually, I'm just living however I want. I really don't care what God's word says about that. And, you know, I really, I really think, I really like to see my kids play sports, and to me that's even more important than church. So, you know, the soccer schedules three months of games on, on Sunday— well, we'll just skip three months of church. No big deal. Our homes are, are, are drowned in entertainment and lacking in scripture. We don't like to serve. And I think the greatest example of syncretism where we mix hedonism and Christianity is church hopping. And there are right and good reasons to leave a church and go to another church. There certainly are. And unfortunately, in a fallen world, that's a fairly long list. But, but there is a culture in, in American Christianity of, well, I'm going to go to this church because I like this. I like this. I like their music. I like their teaching style. I like the seats. I like the people who are there. And none of those are, are necessarily wrong things. You should like what's going on at church. But what, it's a culture of, well, I'm going to go to this church for a few months to maybe two years and then someone does something that makes me angry. Then they change something and I don't like it anymore, so I just go somewhere else that I like more. It's a desire-driven Christianity. It's not this mindset of let me find a church where I can serve the people there and be used by God, where I can hear God's word, but it's really, well, I'm going to live by my desires. I'm going to find the church that meets my desires the best. This is mixing hedonism with Christianity. And it doesn't build up God's church. It doesn't. In response to nationalism, as Christians, we belong to the kingdom of God living as exiles in Babylon. We belong to the kingdom of God living as exiles in Babylon. Uh, Please uh, turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, in, starting in verse 33. This is when Jesus is about to be executed. Jesus' opponents are, are trying to present Jesus to the Roman authorities as being a usurper. They're trying to present him as, as a risk to the Roman government so that they need to crucify him even though their issue with Jesus was a religious issue. They're, they're trying to play him off as, as someone who needs to be put down by the government. And when Jesus had previously rode into Jerusalem, they did hail him as a king. So there is a real sense in that Jesus looked like he was a king, yet when he came into Jerusalem, he went to the temple and not the palace. 
But Jesus has been beaten, he's been grilled, he's been interrogated, and he's sitting before Pilate, the chief Roman authority, at the time, in that area. And Pilate says to him in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Like, Pilate's trying to get to the bottom of this. Okay, what, this situation is confusing me. What's going on here? And Jesus answered in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate is trying to figure out if Jesus is actually guilty. And he asked Jesus, so are you a king? Are you trying to, to, to take over here and become the king of the Jews? And when Pilate really you know, leans into it, Jesus says, look, if I was trying to take over this physical kingdom, my people would have been fighting in the streets. There would have been blood. There would have been a coup. I would not be sitting before you chained up and beaten. That wouldn't have happened. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. I have come into the world to witness to the truth. That's why I'm here. God's kingdom is not of this world. It is not from this world. It's beyond it. And as Christians, we have the great honor of living in the kingdom that is to fully come more in the future. But man, it's so easy, it's so easy to start, to start viewing this earthly kingdom as our kingdom. It's so easy. Syncretism of nationalism and Christianity looks like damaging our mission, our mission of reaching our community, loving our neighbors, damaging that mission in hopes of changing laws. Right, so I'm willing to offend everyone around me because I think this law is what's most important. That there are Christians who have different political views, I'm gonna shun them. There are Christians in other countries, I don't really care because they're not American. It's this idea of leveraging our political power for spiritual gain. John Piper says this, he says, never feel more attached to your fatherland or your tribe or your family or your ethnicity than you do to the family of Christ. Oh, how many horrible indignities, injustices, contradictions of Christianity have been perpetrated because believers have failed to realize this. We are more bound together with other believers, no matter their ethnicity or political alignments or their nationality, than anyone in our own fatherland. We are more bound together with other believers, no matter their ethnicity or political alignment or their nationality, than anyone in our own fatherland. And to, and to be honest, I, I have wrestled through this 
this week. Because when I look at my own heart, very often I find myself more comfortable around people who, who kind of match the way I live. Like I found myself more comfortable with the guys down at the Rod and Gun Club or the guys I meet out on the lake who don't know Jesus than maybe Christians who are from other parts of the world or Christians who have differing beliefs than me. And it is a good thing for us to love our country. It's a good thing for us to love our community and our culture. But we're part of the kingdom of God. So in, in reality, it, it, when we're talking about spiritual reality, we are brothers and sisters. We will spend eternity with Christians in other countries and Christians who very much disagree with us. That should be the most unifying factor for us who belong to the kingdom of God, is our heavenly nationality. And it's so easy to get sucked into, into other, other communities and other cultures as our greatest form of identification. And I'm not saying we should ignore those. I'm not saying we should reject our ethnicity, that we should reject our culture, we should reject our country. But we need to put the kingdom of God first. In, in the medieval ages, there was this idea of Christendom where the Catholic church basically said, well, we are the kingdom of God, so we have authority over the kings. We have authority over the emperors. We have authority over armies. And it's in that period of human history that we have the Crusades which is one of the dirtiest marks on Christianity. Whenever you talk with unbelievers, especially Muslims, they'll say, what about the Crusades? What about the Crusades? That was the result of nationalism mixed into Christianity, that, that we control the government, and so we're going to use the army and laws to control people who disagree with us. We're going we're to leverage world governments for spiritual purposes. When Hitler rose to power, when the Soviets rose to power, they had the support of the majority of churches. Why was that? Because these churches would rather compromise and, and kind of twist their understanding of, the tr of their truth here and there to maintain their position of power. that they would rather continue to have this, this nice relationship where they could be involved with the government and they could keep their buildings. They'd rather have that than stand for the truth and face the news. This has happened within a hundred years of where we are today. Whenever the church steps up and combines itself with the government where you have a, you no longer have this church-state divide. The church faces this irresistible temptation to use power for spiritual gain. This is why many of our Protestant ancestors were burnt at the stake just because they printed these in English. And, and when our Protestant predecessors rose to power, and they became the government, they did the same thing, killing people who disagreed with them under civil court. America is not the new Jerusalem. Like, like we are not God's set-apart people in the world. The church is. The kingdom of God is. America isn't. It's, it's another country, and it's a lovely country. It's the country I love most in this world. 
But it's not the kingdom of God. It's not the new Jerusalem. It's Babylon. We live in the country that murders its own children. Sure, it says one nation under God on our money, but what do we use that money for? We produce media that is corrupting the entire world. We live in Babylon. And that's the worldview of the New Testament, that we're sojourners. We're immigrants. We belong to the kingdom of God, and we're wandering around in nations that are opposing the rule of Christ. But the way to spread the kingdom of God is not a coup, it's a cross. That we don't spread the kingdom of God by taking over the government. We spread the kingdom of God by serving and suffering. It's a cross, not a coup. I'd like to encourage you with, with some words from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, this is, this is my prayer for us. This is my prayer that we recognize that we are, we are sojourners, we are exiles, we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And so in this time on this world, we would live in a way that draws people to Christ. We would live in a way so that unbelievers, either they see how we live and they say, I want some of that, and they come to know Jesus, or if they don't come to know Jesus, on that day of judgment, they, they say to God, you gave me a chance. You surrounded me with people who represented you accurately, and I still rejected you. Be my prayer that that would be the way that we live as sojourners and exiles. We'd abstain from the passions of the flesh that our conduct among unbelievers would be honorable. We need to think biblically. We need to prayerfully examine the places in our lives where we've taken false worldviews and we've just mixed them right in to our Christianity. God's people are not to mix false ideas and practices into their lives. I'd ask that you, you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, please bring our minds to rest and our hearts to peace. In these moments, in response to your word, please bring to our minds the areas where we have allowed the worldviews of our culture to damage our Christian life. And, and as the Lord brings those, those worldviews, these false ideas to mind, would you please pray this with me quietly as you sit in your seats? I renounce this false worldview. It has no place in my life. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Knit my heart to you that I might fear your name. Please lead me in all truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I just, I just charge you and, and my, myself included that this week we'd be evaluating what we believe. 
that we'd be clinging to God's word and we'd be able to separate the things that are false ideas in our culture from the way that God has called us to live, what he's called us to believe, what is true, what is real. And my, my prayer would be that as we become more and more people of the word, that, that we would shine like stars in the darkness, that we'd make an impact in this community and wherever you guys live. And that we better be able to share the truth. Uh, that's my prayer. Thank you. Thank you.